0: I feel like once you name a bug a cocktafer, you're just inviting, you know, same-sex scandal into the equation.
1: Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that takes you from gangwins to queer ducks, the Raw Safari podcast. That's right, y'all. It is the first interview episode of Pride, and we are celebrating in style. Actually, the truth is, um, <laughs> this episode came about in a kind of funny way, and I want to share the story with you all. I tend to get a lot of emails at the Ross Safari account. Uh, some of it is for zoo news. Some of it is talking to different facilities. A bunch of the zoos that I've you know, done interviews at on the podcast have added me to their official news release distribution list, so I, I get lots of emails. And Every once in a while, some anti-captivity person finds me and I get a a nasty email, you know, but normally it's just some nice, cool stuff. And uh, just about two weeks ago, I was having a super busy day and my phone buzzed and I glanced over and I saw an email that just had the subject heading Queer Ducks. And it was from a name that I didn't know. And (laughs) y'all, I did not know what to think about that. Um, queer ducks. Cool. I'm down to talk about queer ducks, whatever that I will talk about any sexuality in any kind of animal. However, I was having a busy day and kind of a weird one. So I took a screenshot of that and sent it to Zoe and a couple friends and just said, y'all, my life is weird. And then I didn't forget about it. I just I couldn't get to it that day. So the next day, I pop open this email, kind of expecting something weird for Zoo News or whatever, or maybe the start of a fun conversation, and my jaw dropped a little bit. The email was from a book publicist who was inviting me to interview Elliot Schraefer, who is a New York Times best-selling author and has twice been a finalist for the National Book Award in Young People's Literature. He's been published in Discover Magazine and New York Times and has written a bunch of really cool novels, including Endangered, which is a pretty darn well-known novel. Uh, he also has a Great Ape Quartet and some other stuff. It's it's a pretty impressive resume, y'all. And And this was like a real deal thing. They were like, hey, would you like to interview Elliot? Here's what the book is about. We'll send you a media copy. And I was like... Ooh, I tricked these people into thinking I'm actually part of the media. That's pretty cool. But um, all joking aside, I was really excited because I am obsessed with reading. I love books, I love literature, I love fiction, I love nonfiction. And um, for a while, I've I've wanted to start a side series on this podcast called Safari Reads, where I would like read children's books about animals. Do uh, you? And kind of do it as an audiobook and then maybe interview authors and stuff. And um, this is not that, but it's a start. It's my interview with Elliot and it's really cool. We had a lot of fun with this one. We really did. It was, uh, you're going to enjoy this. Now, most of you who listen to the podcast already know that I am fascinated by processes, just how people do things, whether it's keeping or making music or whatever, and that includes writing. So when we get into this interview, the first about 23, 24 minutes are talking about process and books and writing and why he wrote this the way he did and why he wrote this and all of that. And then we actually get to a couple of the chapters and talk about specific instances of queer behavior in the animal kingdom. Uh, the book has a lot more, and it's very well-researched, and I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I really loved reading this book. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm so excited to share this with y'all, and I'm so excited that this is landing right at the top of Pride, and uh, I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Now, I will say, you know, <clears throat> for a very well-respected and well-published author, Elliot Does not have the world's best microphone, apparently. Um, I actually used a lot of processing to clean up his audio on this one. Um, It's going to sound kind of like a Skype call, which it wasn't. We were using this other app that's really cool and cleans up audio. But yeah, I did a lot of work on the, the audio on this one, but it's worth it. If if it gets a little garbly at times, you'll understand that, you know, it's coming from the microphone. I did what I could, but trust me, you're going to want to sit through any moments like that because this is a really cool, really fun, really different interview. And just in case you're wondering, yeah, he's an author, but we still get a safari poop story. Poop story. And yeah, in case you're wondering if I felt weird asking a New York Times bestselling author... For a poop story? Poop story. I did. I really, really did. And I don't feel weird about much, to be honest with y'all. But for you, for my audience, I did it. And it turned out to be a banger, so it was worth it. So we're going to get to this interview in just one second. But first, here's an ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end, ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, so uh, yeah, make sure that you're following along on Instagram at Rossafari, Facebook and Twitter at Rossafari as well, um, and uh, hit subscribe if you're listening to this for the first time, or if you're listening for not the first time and still haven't done it. And with all of that said, I am really excited to bring you my interview with an author. This is so cool. Here comes my interview with Elliot Schaefer the author of Queer Ducks and Other Animals. All right, so uh, let's dive in. Why don't you tell everybody listening uh, who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. My name is uh, Elliot Schrafer, and I'm the author most recently of a book called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. Uh, I came to this book after a career of writing young adult literature um, adult novels mainly I'm also part of the animal studies program at NYU so it was through that work that I got first introduced to this uh, to this topic
1: that's awesome and uh, we will get to all of that I'm really excited this is a, an awesome book um thank you for sending me out a copy this is this has been quite enjoyable to to dive into it uh, you have a great writing style
0: oh cool thanks yeah I wanted to especially as most of the readers of this book so far are adults but I wanted it to be teen friendly, and I know they're coming to me from carrying these giant, giant biology textbooks home. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, they can have a have a good time, even as they're
1: learning about some cool animal behaviors. Definitely. So I guess um, I want to dive into your background a little bit. But first question that I have for you, and I've kind of always wondered this, what what like officially makes a book? young adult versus adult or whatever, because I got to tell you, when I was growing up, I read a ton of adult books when I was probably a little too young to do so. And as an adult facing the real world, I find myself enjoying a whole lot of the uh, young adult series out there more and more.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a great Stephen Colbert quote where he says a young adult book is just an adult book that people actually read, <laughs> Which always, uh, stuck with me. I think, um, you know, when I was a teenager, which in the in the nineties, like we just all one by one just plowed through the Stephen King shelf in the local library. Yes, um, and that was our YA, even though that wasn't focused on the lives of teenagers and wasn't written with teenagers in mind necessarily. But I think young adult is really it's more about a writing style than a target audience at this point. Sure, we they tend to focus on the lives of teenagers and the interests of teenagers, but I came to it from writing for adults and. The transition for me was really YA books just really have to get focused on the story engine of plot and character, whereas you have more room in an adult book to kind of wax poetic or, or, you know, have more observations, which can slow a story, story down. I yeah, why I tend to be a pretty uh, lean, lean machine as far as story.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me, actually, because I, yeah, I tend to, um, some of the authors that I've tried that I want to like and just don't like, it's usually because they kind of ramble away from the story. So that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. They get kind of indulgent, right? Yeah. <laughs> teenagers have no room for indulgence. So yeah, it, no, no. They will punish you. Other than their own indulgence, of course, but of that's course. a whole other conversation. <laughs> so tell me about your, uh, your early life and what brought you to here.
0: Yeah. So, well, this book, um, you know, I, when I was 11, I realized I was gay and it was this kind of for people who haven't gone through that, you know, have a, some sort of awakening to an LGBTQ identity. It's, it's, it was really like a sort of shocking moment for me. I was just me before. And then I like started lingering over the of the loom ads, my brother's Rolling Stone. And I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm gay. I'm, <laughs> and everything that I had ever learned told me that gay was something bad to be. Um, you know, the, lunchroom conversation was it's adam and eve not adam and steve right uh, which because it rhymed it had to be true so i was just <laughs> like <laughs> i guess this is something unnatural that i just am and it was so clear to me that it was my truth but i knew that i was gonna face an uphill battle and what i did is i went to the encyclopedia and just looked it up because I was a it would be no surprise to your audience i was a nerdy kid and um <laughs> I looked it up in the in the Encyclopedia Britannica and it just said, you know, homosexuality is this cultural thing that happens to humans. It's caused from too much attachment to your mom or your dad, or maybe too little, like people were disagreeing. But it certainly wasn't no mention of it existing in nature. And I, you know, I I lived in a purple state. I had accepting parents. I, I came out and I was I was fine. I just had a few years of struggle in, in between. But now as a student of animal studies, coming into this wealth of research that's happened over the last 20 years into same-sex sexual behavior in animals, I realized like I didn't, I could have cut out a long and, and difficult stage of that journey. Like if I had known the information that is now available within the scientific literature, it would have it would have changed my relationship to myself and my beliefs about my unnaturalness, which I took for granted and it's actually increasingly being shown to be untrue that animals have this huge diversity in the ways that they have sex and the ways they express their own sexual identities and sometimes live outside of sexual binaries.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I am, I am male, white, straight, cis. I'm, I'm all of the, the things that, you know, like you said, growing up, you were quote supposed to be, you know, um, but, uh, as I've gotten older, um, you know, I've experienced a couple of things, including, um, I have vitiligo and that is a, a skin condition where my skin, some of my skin loses pigmentation. And, um, it was the same thing where I kind of, when it first started developing, I was like, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm a freak and who would want to look at somebody like that? But. Then, um, you know, it started with me with doing some research, just even on like Instagram and stuff that there are like models that have that that are considered beautiful. But it was the same thing where when I started finding out about different animal markings and how there are different, you know, pigmentation disorders, if you want to call it that, or just variations uh, in animals that I started to feel really comfortable in my own skin. And it literally, it's a thing on my skin, you know? And, um, it it was fascinating to me as I was going through your book and you were talking about that connection being like, oh yeah, I don't have the, the LGBTQ plus connection with that. But at the same time, I know exactly what you mean. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And there's, there's right now a hippo at the Cincinnati zoo, Tucker, who I, they don't know, they don't call it vitiligo, but he has similar markings to what that is. And I go and I see him and I'm like, Tucker, we have the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Take a picture of my arm next to his face, where he has the the you know pigmentation issues, and it just it makes me feel so cool.
0: Yeah, it's funny before I just before puberty hit and I realized I was gay. Like I was sort of in the makings of being just a little jerk, you know, like a little tyrant about like just sort of looking at like protecting my own power and just being being mean. Um, And I think once you flip over and you are something that is outside of the mainstream or that people target for bullying, like you actually develop empathy towards other people who are in similar positions, whether it's because of being LGBTQIA, because having a medical condition or because of race that you know you you start to realize what it's like to be thwarted to have an uphill
1: battle. Definitely. And that's so fascinating that you say that about yourself when you were young, because I have to tell you, your book is dripping with empathy. Like you 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 put such effort into making sure that anyone who reads this is going to feel welcome and not judged. And, you know, you have a whole section about why you use the term queer and everything that I I thought was beautiful, and I thought really made a lot of sense to me. Um, and it seems like you're really coming at all of this from from a place of empathy. So it's interesting that you weren't always there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's it's. I feel like empathy is not. It's a it's a habit that always has to be relearned and broadened. Uh, and you know, some of the topics in the book, I thought I came in with a the full set of empathies, especially towards people that are LGBTQ. But I. I, I encountered animal examples that made me kind of broaden my mind um, around sort of ideas of polyamory and um, and y- lifelong unions that don't involve sex um, that were, were opened my eyes to like more ways of being than I had been considering too.
1: Definitely, yeah, that's really cool. I love how we're always always learning. Um, so you said that you're doing the animal studies program. Did you come up learning? you know, biology and animal stuff, was that a focus for you or was that a little bit later in life? Yeah, I entered college as an
0: evolutionary biology major, but, you know, you're 19 and you're trying to figure out the meaning of life. I mean, it seemed like literature was the way there, so I switched over to comparative literature and kind of lost track of my old science-y self. Um, but uh, I, you know, then I switched to writing novels. I've been writing and publishing for about 15 years, and I... That science part of me was always there. Um, and I used to have a side hustle in order to pay the bills while I was writing books. I was an SAT tutor. And I, I was able to quit that job. And I thought I would just write more. And instead, I just started playing PlayStation more. <laughs> So <laughs> I realized, like, oh, I should do something else with the extra hours in the day. Because I can only write for four or five hours. And then I'm tapped out. So sure. I, um, I became a very, very slow master's student. I'm taking one class a semester. So it's it's sort of like slow food. I'm getting a slow master's. So it's I'm on a four-year plan for getting this degree, but it was just a way to fertilize the field and be introduced to new ideas and new concepts. And it was through this animal studies program that I started to read about individual scientists who were, who were discussing same-sex sexual behavior in their species of study. But I realized all those studies and all that information was siloed away, that the dolphin people knew about it in dolphins and the macaque people knew about it in macaque monkeys. But there, I was looking for something that was sort of an overarching, uh, something that looked at, why is this occurring? And that nature just did a study of 1,500 species and counting that have same-sex sexual behaviors or live outside of sexual binaries. And why is this so prevalent throughout all the threads of the animal kingdom? Like, what's going on? And I couldn't find a book to answer that question. So I was like, oh, oh, I guess I have to write it. I, I was hoping just to read it, but I, I guess here I go.
1: Yeah. I love those stories. That's actually how I started my podcast. Same thing. I, I wanted to talk, I talked mostly to like zookeepers and conservationists and I wanted to find the podcast that did that. And there wasn't one. And I was like, oh, oh, well, I know what I'm doing now. So thank, yeah.
0: Thank God you created it. <laughs> yeah. it's wonderful. Thank you.
1: Um, So you know, before we get into a little bit more on, on, on the new book, I want to talk a little bit about the old books because you have so many cool animal books and, um, you know, you have your, um, the grape, ape, that grape ape. Yeah, that's it. The great the ape creation. quartet. There we go. And, um, I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit because I know it's even come to the attention of Jane Goodall. Yeah,
0: right. Right. Yeah. The, um, I started by that journey started in, 2010 I bought a pair of pants that were bonobos brand Um, (laughs) are you familiar with their pants
1: I am but (laughs) that that is amazing
0: (laughs) and I thought it was a nonsense word and so I um I googled it I was like b-o-n-o-b-o where did that come where did they come up with that and I found YouTube clips of bonobo apes and I just like lost the whole afternoon to bonobo videos (laughs) and that was that was it for me and it, it was um learning about them and their society and their you know their They're a wonderful metaphor that nature has just handed to us for human existence, that bonobos and chimps are tied as our closest relatives. And bonobos have this matriarchal, peaceful society called the make-love-not-war ape. And that chimps have this hyper-patriarchal, violent society. (laughs) Um, So I just, I realized, like, you know, I was in the mode of, is that a dog in the background? That
1: is a dog in the background, that's Caleb.
0: (laughs) Hi, Caleb. Um, So I realized, you know... I was a storyteller. I was writing novels, and the, my emotions got fired up so much when I was reading about the bonobos and their plight and these orphaned bonobo apes that I realized there was a lot of nonfiction out there about them, but I wanted to tell the story of one young bonobo and the uh, girl in Congo who winds up raising him during a time of war. So that was what kicked me off, and then I, I, I took to that book so much and I enjoyed writing it so much that I wound up with it. Yeah, the Great Ape Quartet, which sounds a little like a barbershop of, barbershop quartet <laughs> yeah. <great> of apes, but <laughs> it is it is not. It is four books, one for each of the ape species, and um, just looking at a different story about a young person in relationship to that animal.
1: That's awesome, and um, <clears throat> they really took off. Got got a lot of press, got a lot of praise, which is is really cool. Um, do you ever worry though? as you're writing fictional books about animals um, as like in terms of just making sure that you get the biology, right. And making sure that your messaging is, is good, because I'm assuming that at least part of your goal with this is to, you know, encourage people to learn about and fall in love with the animals.
0: Yeah. Well, and I'm lucky in that I don't have, you know, I don't have a tenure track position in the sciences in which peer review and the, all the standards that scientists have to hold themselves to also include a high expectation of anthropogenial as as Franz De wall called it, like the opposite of anthropomorphism, right? To to be as rigorous as possible around your animal subjects, which seems like that's how to make sure we're having good science. But it's actually the way it's borne out is it is prevented science from from really thinking in emotional terms around animals um conrad lorenz the nobel prize winning ornithologist has a wonderful passage in his his, one of his books where he talks about a observing a goose who has lost its partner and the goose's wings droop it loses interest in food its musculature goes limp it has weeks of just sort of lolling about the nest and not taking uh taking any interest in its normal activities and he says he can write all those things but he cannot say the goose is grieving like that is, grieving is a sacred emotion that we attach to humans and it's bad science to say a goose is grieving. And he just points out what that limits in our ability to empathize and the amount of what, care that we can give to animals. And for me, you know, as a fiction writer, I don't have to worry about someone firing me for, for anthropomorphism, right? <laughs> right? Um, but at the, same side, at the same time, I don't want to treat animals like cuddly stuffed animals that just behave the way we expect them to. So with those books, I, I, because they were, they were not for young readers. They were for teen readers. And up, I, you know, I went to a bonobo sanctuary in Congo and I observed them and they have a lot of, you know, they have a reputation of being this make love, not war ape, but they could also be plenty aggressive. I've got a bonobo bite that left a scar. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're like, um, they're rapscallions and they are, they're not, you know, just little care bears. So, (laughs) Um, I was always, I was always keeping my eye out for bonobo behaviors that complicated our view of them instead of just reinforce this, this one story we have of them as this, this peaceful, beautiful creature.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's, oh, that's so cool. You got a bonobo bite. That's it's, <laughs> it's always the scars that are the most fun. I think I have a red panda scar. So, and I brag okay. about it a lot. So yeah, <laughs> Wow.
0: that's impressive. Yeah. It was funny when the bonobo bit me, I got, in the sanctuary in Congo, I got one bar of signal in one spot. So I actually called my, my doctor in the U S and I said, I, I got bitten by an endangered ape in Congo. What should I do? And he said, um, can I put you on hold? <laughs> and then he came back and he's like, just wash it out with soap and water. That's all I got for you. I was like, oh my gosh. Amazing. So that's what I did.
1: Yeah. I was, I was recently beaten by, or beaten. I was recently bitten by a ringtail lemur and, um, Shortly thereafter, in a part of my body that was not bitten, I got a pretty serious infection, ended up in the hospital. And I kept debating whether or not I needed to tell the doctors that I had also been bitten by a lemur. And I was like, I'm just, I'm not going to touch this. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, they figure it out on their own. And because I didn't want to get the lemur in trouble.
0: <laughs> you know how when you're talking to a doctor, they're typing away the whole time, like adding to your file? I yes. can just imagine, like, you're saying that ring tailed lemur and he like pauses and
1: typing. He says, I'm sorry, one more time. <laughs> yeah, I was just, like, I was like, you know what? If this, if I go from a lemur bite, I'm okay with it. I don't want anyone getting in trouble, and this is weird. So
0: <laughs> yes, it might be a very John Rossi way to go <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely so um, awesome let's let's dive into queer ducks a little bit. I am. I really, like I said, I love this book. I can't say enough about it. Um, and, you know, I mentioned earlier that you said something about the, the term, specifically using the term queer. Um, and I've had, you know, conversations on here with penguin keepers talking about their their penguins and and um, we, we talked about gangwins and such, which is always fun. Um, but why did you go with the term queer specifically?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, the spoiler version is that you know bisexuality is a much more useful term in animals than gay or lesbian, just because for the most part, there are some exceptions. But for the most part, non-human animals are not living absolute one hundred percent gay or lesbian lives. Um there's also the science is increasingly showing it's really unusual for them to live one hundred percent heterosexual lives that they're they're somewhere in the middle and they're open to sexual expressions with with both uh, genders. and Queer is one of those words that you know has, has ancient roots and applies to LGBTQ people and was used pejoratively for a long time. But in the 90s, there was a movement to reclaim that word and, and to own it. And it's just broad enough, I think, that it can include a whole host of sexual identities and sexual behaviors in animals. That So it was a, it was a more useful term to me than gay or lesbian, which carries a host of connotations that don't really apply to animals.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you already touched on um, anthropomorphism and and the the kind of pros and cons of it. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of wonder um, for, for people listening here, because you definitely touch on this in the book. But um, all of these terms that we use and there's the the LGBTQ alphabet, as some people call it, because the the. The phrase keeps getting longer to include more things, and like, yay inclusivity! I'm all about that. Um, but from the research and what you've looked into here, do animals think of themselves in the, in that way? Are there, you know, um, are there different animals that are looking? Oh my goodness! I didn't. I wow! They've partnered up with a girl now. I did. I didn't know that they were were lesbians or <laughs> or or is that just humans being humans and trying to define everything?
0: Right. Yeah, there's a lot of anim- animal behaviorists that resist the idea of orientation entirely around animals because to have an orientation towards one or both sexes implies that you see sex as a category, which very well might be a human construction that that our brains have gotten used to, but that animals don't categorize other conspecifics in the same way. So. I I do wonder about orientation as a concept and what the animal's eye view of it would be. I talked to a variety of scientists that I included Q&As from them that had very different identities than mine. You know, I'm a white cisgender guy, so people of color, trans non-binary people, as well as straight researchers. Um, And I talked to one trans scientist who was just in the field and, and he was talking about He's been on, still is on a journey around gender and and figuring out exactly how to express his gender. But he, when he's, he would just look forward to the weeks when he was at his field site and just, just struggling about how to get through this next switchback and mud up to his knees and with the moose and the binoculars, like the moose did not care where he was in his gender journey right movie, like <laughs> like it was no not on their mind whatsoever and therefore it wasn't on his and it was a relief it was like not having to navigate the categorization or the sense that that someone might shame you for your choices around around your gender that nature was a refuge and a place of calmness and oneness and i i
1: thought that was
0: it was it was an inspiring moment when he when he told me
1: about that yeah that's that's really beautiful i love that and so in the book, you touch on uh, ten different species. I'm, I'm maybe a little bit more because there was like the ducks and geese chapter and such. But basically, you break it down into ten different chapters that um, look at different types of sexuality, and you put at the end of some of those Q and A's with various uh, researchers and evolutionary biologists and other people who are. Sciency. I'm going with the term sciency because we're very professional on this podcast. <laughs>
0: it's a great way
1: to teach <laughs> useful. And um, I'm curious why you thought that was important.
0: Yeah, partly it was because I, you know, I have the the luxury of finding kind of unfettered joy in animal comparisons. So I, to, for me, to find out like, oh, in this way, I am just like a dolphin, is a source of wonder and and relief. But you know, as a, particularly as a white person, like I did not grow up with people throwing animal comparisons at me at, to hurt me. Um, but black and Latinx people, you know, get compared to animals as a as a way to put them down. And so I know coming to that, that animal comparison isn't, is more complicated in their cases. And so I just didn't, um, I wanted to include their voices for that reason. But also, you know, I think young people can have a narrow version, narrow vision of Who gets to do science and i wanted to model these young researchers that have chosen to to enter this field and that don't look like the
1: you know the middle-aged white guy in a lab coat that the young readers might be expecting definitely and they definitely were a a very cool cool part of the book. I, I was a fan. Um, would you be willing? So I don't, I don't know. This is my first time interviewing an author. I'm a, I'm a rookie at oh, this. You're doing great. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, one of the things I wasn't sure of though, is like, you know, we don't want to give away the book. We want people to go out and buy your book. And I really do. I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you. It's, it's really cool. Um, but are you willing to talk about maybe, I don't know, one or two of the, the animals and give us just a, a small version of, of helping people understand what they'll find in the book by talking uh, about some of those?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. When I love, um, talking to you about this book, because it's, when it's a work of fiction that I'm talking to someone about, like, you... Can spoil it, but it's not like there's a plot to give away. Here. So <laughs> true. I think true. there'll be plenty that I'm glossing over. So let's yeah, let's dive in and, and get as deep as you like.
1: Um, okay, cool. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, you start with doodle bugs. Why do you start with doodle bugs? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So
0: the doodle bugs also were a way of looking at the history around the reporting of same sex behavior in animals, and I wanted to sort of ground us in where we've where we've been. Um, as far as how people have talked about uh, animal homosexual behavior. So the doodle bugs were, you know, if you were an um, entomologist in the nineteenth century, I just had a moment of like, wait is it etymology or entomology? Always <laughs> I have screwed that way. up
1: on the podcast before and been you <laughs> be doing for it. It now. It
0: is entomology, right? <laughs> yes, okay. Um so an entomologist in the in the nineteenth century, you know, there was August Kelch was a a German researcher who, Saw these doodlebugs, which are also known as cockchafers. I feel like once you name a bug a cockchafer, you're just inviting, you know, <laughs> same-sex scandal into the equation. But he found two male cockchafer doodlebug beetles um, in the in the wild uh, copulating, and so he took the sample and he brought it around to his colleagues, and he just said, you know, is this what I think it is? And they pulled these two guys apart, and unfortunately, one of them. His penis fell off in the parting.
1: Um,
0: yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous behavior having sex when you have an exoskeleton. with a lot of <laughs> sharp, sharp surfaces. Um, so he took him around to his colleagues and they, they confirmed it. And then they started they started looking in, in the wild for the same behavior. And they found it's very, very frequent. Uh, and you know, this is the 1830s. Even homosexuality or homosexual didn't exist as a word until the 1890s in German and English. So there wasn't a... An, the concept of uh, having a same-sex orientation there were definitely words for for people having sex with someone of the same sex but it wasn't an identity um so they they found more and more of it uh, entomologists in france and russia got involved and everyone was publishing on it it was in all the big entomology magazines um but the scientists that looked into it too heavily got you know accused of having uh, an unnatural interest in this material like why should we why should we discuss or publicize or examine what they would call sexual perversion in these animals
1: what um, scientists have never gotten in trouble for saying things that are revolutionary and might contradict certain traditional <laughs> conservative value what
0: <laughs> yeah i've never never heard of that I mean, this is a really shocking case um, and uh and so they it wound up it was picked up you know leave the the Circulation leave, no one would write about it for years, and the issue would get picked up again, and, and it finally dropped out of view. Meanwhile, the cocktavers were just going about their business, including some sometimes having same-sex populations. Um, so it was just a, a way to, you know, you learn a little bit about the ways that doodlebugs have sex by looking at this history, but you learn a lot more about the history of human prejudice and the way that we think around about homosexuality and sexual behavior.
1: Yeah, I think it was a great start. Although I'm not going to lie, when I opened up to the table of contents and saw all of these animals that people know and and think about and such, and then I saw doodle bugs was your opening shot. I was a uh, I was a little surprised, but it works really well in the context of the book. And also, holy crap, the amount of doodle puns that you make! in that chapter. <laughs> um, this podcast is full of puns. So I just, I felt that we were going to get along very well. After <laughs> that's that. great. That's great. There's one point where you apologize for it. And I was like, I do that. I do that on the pod. Yeah. I even say at one point, I'm not going to use another pun and then I do another pun immediately. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. Yeah. beautiful. <laughs> and then, um, so as you go through, you, you kind of just look at different like each chapter not only looks at a different animal, but looks at different topics. So so, you know, we we talk about whether or not there's a genetic basis uh, basis for same sex attraction and and um, whether there are trans animals and and do you even need to have sex for sexuality. And, you know, I just had a friend who's also a listener of the pod, uh, come out as asexual and boy, did I learn a lot about that. Um, just from her posting and, and then me doing some research to like, you know, be a good friend. Um, it's all really interesting and I love how you use this. Can you talk about, uh, you know, there's, there's so much discussion right now, um, about the trans community in, in the, uh, in the news and can you talk about your chapter that looked at deer and um you know trans animals
0: yeah yeah my pleasure I, that was um a, a, going in it was a, a, a tra- chapter i was nervous about because as a cisgender person i i was aware of you know that i, I don't i haven't lived this experience um and when i was looking into the question of whether an animals can be trans or, or if that's an appropriate term to use around an animal i kept bumping into the other mind's problem that you really don't know what's going on in someone else's head and one of the key components of trans identity is the ability to express your relationship to your gender which might not be the one that is obvious when someone looks at you um so you know someone can say i know i'm you're reading me as male but i am a woman i I, I identify as female i am female um an animal doesn't can't tell us right so we don't have that they might have that internal experience of their own sex um but they they can't tell us so I kind of just dis- like put to one side the question of transness because it's sort of we can't solve it. but intersexuality is a way in which animals live outside of sexual binaries, and it is very common in the animal world um, from whales uh, through primates and the, the white-tailed deer have one of the highest percentages of intersexuality. so 13 percent of white-tailed deer are what's known as velvet horns, uh, and they have um, male and female genitalia, and they grow antlers like young cisgender male deer do. Um, and they grow antlers, and they're covered in velvet. And then a, a year in, the um, other males break their velvet. They have the antlers that we familiar- are familiar with. Um, but these velvet horns keep the velvet; they don't break out of the velvet. And their body shape is closer to a doe, so they're living between these these two sexes, and. They don't join the bachelor herds or the female herds um, and they are, if there's only one, it's just ostracized from the group. It lives on its own. Um, but if there are other velvet horns, they form their own kind of velvet horn societies. These sort of found families that they have for, for each other. And um, if they if they come across an orphan fawn, they, they uh, will, will adopt it. They will raise that fawn. It becomes part of the group too. Um, so it's this Example of it's not being trans, um, but it is this way in which they live a life outside of the male female binary that the rest of deer are, are tied to. And one of my favorite sub elements of the, the Velvet Horn deer story is that they, since they don't compete for mates, they don't fight each other with their antlers. And so they're actually much healthier than the males that live in the bachelor herd. So one researcher said they have. Um, Excellent fat deposits is a way of aside that they're healthy. And I just love that term, this idea of like, oh, you have great fat deposits. Like, <laughs> nothing I've tried to say to a human since, but it, it definitely stuck in my mind.
1: Yeah, I am not gonna drop that one on my fiance, but uh it's I'll you good know, idea. keep keep it in the keep it in the chamber just in case. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's yeah, that I found that so fascinating. And um, you know, again, it kind of goes back to I, I don't know, I still I, I sometimes, I think sometimes I worry that by breaking down and, and trying to use such unique terms for everything that we miss the greater picture of just like, I don't know, I think we should just accept everyone for who they are. But I also respect that every group of people wants to know that they are in a group and, um you know, that there are others out there and, and like celebrate who they are. So I, I truly see both sides of it. And if there's one thing I have learned, it's that if I'm not in an active group, I don't need to be worrying about how they're handling themselves or what terms they're using or any, I'm just here to learn and to be an ally. Um, but I, I did love the whole, you know, intersectional deer concept and, and the discussion about, yeah, are they, well, they're not really trans, but you know, I I think that's just fascinating, you know?
0: Yeah. It's a great way to put it. That if you, if you don't have like a immediate, urgent, vested interest, like let, let the group decide and listen and learn, right? That's, that's a, that's a wonderful
1: instinct. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, and I had, I had to learn that at first. I had opinions about everything <laughs> and I think that's just natural, especially in an age of social media and everything, you know? And, and uh, yeah, but I think, I think we could, we should all maybe follow that instinct a little bit more. There are a lot of people out there who don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. There were a couple of the scientists. It was a theme that came up in the Q and A's was I, I, I want more humility in science, right? Like not, not to map one's, Expectations or view onto animal populations, but just really, really actively listen and watch and observe and see see what the animals can tell us without us uh, navigating the way for them.
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, what is what? What is? I I don't know if I can ask you this or if this is like the what is your favorite child question. But what is your favorite chapter? Or if you can't answer that, what is the the chapter that surprised you the most in this book?
0: Yeah, I think the you know the one that. I have friends who you know are teachers in schools and that that are heads of the g s a and are the the biggest like have the giant most giant pride flag outside of their classroom and two of them when they read the manuscript and uh, just to give me feedback, two of them had a real emotional journey around the polyamory
1: chapter okay
0: um of the three the three bird nests that exist in um gray like geese and, and and other birds that you know. They were all ready to fight for lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual people, but to like fight for polyamory was something that they hadn't considered and weren't ready for. Um, so it was, it was a chapter that, that took people on a journey. Um, of the. I mean, the, what happens with, with geese is that you have sometimes female, female, male, but more often male, male, female nests, where all three will do the triumph ceremony. The males would do the triumph ceremony to both their partners. And it's this, that's the, the bonding ritual, the sign of a of a life union between these birds. But they just have a three-bird nest instead of a two-bird one. And the there's a higher survivorship for the chicks because, you know, when you think about life as a bird, you know, as a mammal, you have offspring you can carry around with you, or it can, they can walk as soon as it's born, with the exception of humans who have useless newborns. Um, <laughs> but uh, if, you ever, if you're a bird, you know, you lay an egg, and the egg can't go anywhere, which means you can't go anywhere. So there are these delicious creatures sitting on nests that are highly vulnerable during that time. Uh, and so when you have a three bird nest, you have uh, always someone there with the eggs and you have more birds to defend the nest. If a Fox comes by say, or a snake. So it, it helps everyone survive, including the, uh, including the fledglings. Uh, and there's also, it's been noted that these, the majority of nests are still two bird nests and gray lag geese, but this significant Uh, if if a minority, a significant minority of three-bird nests, tend to settle on the outside edges of the flock. So males are noisier, more aggressive, and and more vigilant defenders against predators. So it's been theorized that by having these three-bird nests on the edge, it's it's a group selection pressure that keeps the whole group safer because they have more noisy fighting males for each of those nests where predators are more likely to come first.
1: Makes sense. I love it. That's, yeah, that's really cool. So what, what would your, your sales pitch be to, to everybody listening right now? They've, they've heard you say all of this, but, um, convince them to buy your book.
0: (laughs) Um, and you can also get it from the library. I'd be very happy to have that happen. That's fine. Um, I think, you know, there's some people that the moment they hear about what what I'm trying to say in queer ducks and or the examples that I'm raising uh, will it will make people angry? Some because they simply cherish the sort of Noah's Ark view of one male, one female, the way it's meant to be, um, and that they're they're unwilling to to consider the naturalness of LGBTQ identities. Um, but I think there's another group of people that will be kind of upset with the project of the book or what they see as the project of the book, in that. Um, that they might think I'm arguing for human behaviors from animal behaviors, you know, that because in bottlenose dolphins, the males form these lifelong sexual unions that I'm saying that humans should do the same. Uh, But, you know, animals do all sorts of things that we don't want humans doing, like cannibalizing each other right after they have sex and um, (laughs) that no one is arguing that, that we should do that too. So aren't I just cherry picking examples to make this argument, but it's really, it's really getting it the opposite. Um, that I'm, I'm not arguing for human behavior from animal examples, but instead I'm saying that the untenable thing uh, is to argue that humans are unnatural for same-sex sexual behavior or sexual identity that's not binary. That that is, that is an untenable position, and queer ducks will show you why and give you a lot of examples of animals that establish what's called bisexual advantage which is a phrase i'm now in love with but the, um, <laughs> the biologists like argue that you know that bisexuality has a huge number of benefits or openness the same sex sex has a huge huge amount of benefit to animal populations and queer ducks is a way to sort of uh, spend time with that idea and and become open to to humans and make those similar kinds of choices
1: I love that. And I'm curious. I have one more kind of deeper question about this. Um, In all of the research and all of everyone you talked to, did you ever find, um, you know, to anthropomorphize again, uh, examples of bigotry in in animal species where uh, where these these, you know, queer relationships exist? And then the, quote, normal. And I'm using that with all the grossness that that is, you know, implies um, animals treat them differently, hate them, create legislation. Like, okay, maybe I'm nah, Okay, We know what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Or ban their books from school libraries. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, by and large, no. And in fact, it's, you know, it's interesting to see how casually or, you know, animals don't bring shame to the concept of having sex with someone of the same sex. If it's, if it feels good and it's, or it's socially useful, they'll do it. But, The velvet-horned deer is actually an example of... The velvet-horns are... Deer live in massively sex-segregated societies where males and females come together rarely, and males live in their own group, and females live in their own group, by the way, having a lot of same-sex sex, sex, both of those groups, um, within their societies. But the velvet-horns, the intersex deer, um, are rejected by both those groups. Uh, And so that does seem to indicate a sense of, of not being accepted. Sort of, they have a kind of a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer existence, right? <laughs> <laughs> not joining the, the reindeer games. Um, but that's, though they do found their own, their own found families, it, it feels a little like a corollary to the way that, you know, human LGBTQ people who are cast out of their homes, if they're lucky, will find, find a found family that becomes their their main
1: source of family. Yeah, that's really interesting. But it's it's so interesting that that you know that is very rare, if if not you know almost non-existent. And and kind of a beautiful thought. Yeah, it's um, a human specialty. Yeah, shame and shame. Other people. Oh, we're so good at it. We're so good at it. Really <laughs> it really is a shame. Um, awesome. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show, Story. but there's one tale. Go. Oh, you're gonna laugh and say, "Oh no!" Oh, it's time
0: for the poop poop <laughs> um, Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story, and you let me know if it qualifies. Okay. Um, I was at an orangutan rescue in Sumatra that was basically a quarantine where, when orphans were found, they were brought to this quarantine where they lived in isolation cages for a few months to make sure they had no diseases before they were brought back out into the wild. And uh, as I was doing the research i also was given like small tasks to do by the staff and um, one of them gave me a, a bowl of cut up melon to to give one piece to each of the orangutans in this one zone so i was giving out melon and i realized there was five orangutans in this set of cages and i only had four pieces of melon and um, so i had to skip the last one and she made no sign of even acknowledging the fact that she hadn't gotten melon like she was just totally calm which is an orangutan specialty you never know what's going on in Right. Um, and so I did a, I did a walk around the rest of the sanctuary, and as I was coming back around, I was gonna go get more melon so I could feed this final one, and I just heard <laughs> and she spat this like giant hawker <laughs> into my neck. Um, just like waited calmly it was 20 minutes later, you know, when I came around again. she just waited calmly, gathering phlegm and spat on me the moment I I reappeared to punish
1: me for for overlooking her. I love that so much. And that is exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> awesome. That's well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been an absolute blast.
0: Well, you have um, a new fan in me. I can't wait to listen to the rest of your podcast. And I really, really appreciate the, um, the depth with which you thought about queer ducks and, and these wonderful questions.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 So there you go. Uh, I hope that was interesting to you and I hope it makes you want to check out the book. Queer Ducks can be found anywhere that you find books. Uh, hit up a, a local bookseller if possible and ask for it or, you know, libraries are always a good place or I guess, you know. Amazon or whatever, if that's what you have to do. Um, Trust me, I get it. I'm on the road. I rely on Amazon a lot. You can also check Elliot out on Instagram at Schreifer, which is S-C-H-R-E-F-E-R. And, uh, you know, he has a whole author page on the Facebooks and all of that kind of stuff, too. Lots of places that you can find Elliot and his work. I'm actually really excited to check out some of his other books, and I cannot wait until Miles is a little bit older and I can introduce him to some of this stuff. It's, uh, it's going to be cool. This is going to be a lot of fun. And remember, folks, you should never make a joke at a queer duck or any other animal, including humans, expense. Because I don't care how good the joke is, no good person is going to quack up. Nope. John, no. Oh, well, I tried. <laughs> Anyway, I'd like to say thanks to my Red Panda-level patron, Laura Shank. And uh, remember, y'all, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossifari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray.